you know, I was always pleased and thank you. I one of my most defining moments was when Steven Tyler and Joe Perry came in to do a guest spot on the show. And you know, I was like, hi, Mr. Perry. Hi, Mr. Tyler. You know, and they're they're all like, ah! and, and <laughs> it's funny because I later had the chance to really have a nice sit down conversation with Steven. And, and I told him that he goes, dude, he said, you know, I was probably so out of my gourd. Who knows what I'd taken that day. <laughs> Benstone president Dave Chachi Dennis loves radio and all of his radio friends. Hey, Chachi. Hey, everybody. Because Chachi loves everybody. <laughs> so before I intro the next guest, I have to say just how excited I am to be able to speak to him. I have followed his career pretty much from the very beginning, and I have just so much respect for him because not only is he an amazing, fantastic broadcaster and talent, but he is just an amazing human being on top of it. Uh, he's been hailed uh, three times the National Radio Personality of the Year by the Academy of Country Music. He has nine Billboard Awards, a Marconi Award nomination, and was inducted into the National Radio Hall of Fame in 2013. His personal mantra, which I love, is work hard and be kind. Everyone, welcome Blair Garner. Blair, thank you so much for joining us today. You, by the way, I, I'm going to record this and play it for like whenever I enter a room. So it makes me <laughs> feel important. It's very kind of you to say all that. Thank you very, very much. I mean it, man. And it's all factual too. <laughs> well, but it's, you know what, we're, we have a, a mutual appreciation here for, for you, Chachi, because number one, I landed upon your podcast when you interviewed Lori Lewis, whom I admire you know to the hilt and uh it was such an insightful and well done interview what you're doing with this podcast is tremendously exciting and i'm also inspired by you with the creation of benstown and what you have been able to achieve because i i truly believe that when you marry a dream to action it's unstoppable the things that you can achieve and I know that Benstown at one point was a dream for you. And then to take action, to make that dream into reality, those are the stories that inspire me. And I'm a, just as big a fan of yours and everyone at Benstown. You've been so kind to me during my career, and I appreciate everything. So very honored to be here. Thank you, man. I can't even begin to tell you how much that means to me. And when you hit me up uh, on LinkedIn a few weeks ago with your compliments, I was just beside myself. I actually showed it. I happened to be, it was over the holidays. And so I showed it to my parents. I was so excited. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, let me tell you why it's so good. I think that interviewing is a skill, which, you know, uh, this current endeavor that I'm taking on the mule house is all built upon uh, what I most love about getting to be on radio and that is interviewing and i think it's a real conundrum for a lot of people who get into broadcast because it can make you or break you you know we have all this ppm research saying that that interviews are the death of broadcast radio that you don't want to do it and so you know in that environment we find ourselves doing an interview and then cutting it down to this little sound bite which doesn't really i don't think build the whole story tell everything that's out there so I think interviews, when done well, are probably tremendous for PPM. I, I, Howard Stern, I think, is one of the most brilliant interviewers that is out there. And he lives and he does very well because of those interviews. And even if he were still on terrestrial radio, I, I think that his numbers would be phenomenal. So interview is a hallmark. It, it's one of those things that's challenging to do, 
but you do it so well because of what I believe is the foundational element to any interview, and that is simply listening. You know, you listened when I when I listened to you with Lori Lewis, watched you as well. I saw that you heard what she said and you knew where to go. You gave a thoughtful question on the heels of what she had just said. And that's because you listened. So I'm a big fan of what you're doing with this podcast. And uh, the fact that you then hit me back to be on it, I'm, I'm really honored. Oh, man, I am. I'm just like beside myself now after the, the LinkedIn was just a uh, an hors d'oeuvre to what you just said. I, thank you very much, man. But it's true. Thank you. And I, any program director, you know, I, I've got to believe there's going to be a swing of the pendulum at some point. Uh, that's with the onslaught of, of podcasts. This allows you to do exactly uh, what we're talking about, to do a deep dive. And I think there's a real beauty in that that is going to resurge and, and find itself much more highly valued than it has been recently. I I completely agree with you. And that's why I'm really excited to get into Mule House and what you're doing there, because talking about a gigantic endeavor, I'm going to actually give a little tease and then we're going to go into the beginning of your career and then get to what you're doing now with the Mule House. But you have an amazing quote that your father actually said uh, to you, and he's who inspired you to have so much courage, I guess, both you, uh, your mother and your father. And your mother had said that early on that the odds don't apply to you which I think is just a fantastic quote. And then your dad said, if you're going to make a mistake, make it as big as possible. Don't be timid. And I, I love the, just how courageous you are. And I want to get into more of the mule house here in a few minutes, but to say that it is an ambitious project, I think is an understatement and what you're doing is just absolutely amazing. So that's the tease. And let's talk about growing up in Canyon, Texas. <laughs> okay. Where the cattle outnumber the people about three to one. <laughs> what was it like as a child? You know, it was an idyllic society. I feel badly, or I feel bad. My brother, who's the editor of Black's Law uh, Dictionary, he and I just had a conversation moments ago about the use of bad or badly. Like, I feel bad for somebody, or do you feel badly for somebody? What do you think? Oh, man, that's a great question. I would, I feel bad, I think is what I would say, B-A-D. That's right. I feel bad. Otherwise, it's like if you were touching, like, you know, I'm not good at touching my skin for them. So the correct usage would be bad. You don't want to play Scrabble with my brother. He <laughs> Apparently <actually>. not. <laughs> no, he, he has 23 books published in the legal field. He, uh, as I said, is the editor of Black's Law. He wrote two landmark books with Justice Scalia of the Supreme Court. Oh, my gosh. RBG was one of his good friends. Uh, Chief Justice John Roberts has attended my brother's uh, speaking seminars. It's all about how to uh, rid the legal language of legalese and to make it accessible to the lay people like you and I. Like you and me. See right there, I'm just catching myself. That is fa- that's fascinating. So your brother, I'm taking it, highly educated. And yes. Scalia is someone he had a quote and I'm going to butcher it, but he said, I don't attack people, I attack ideas. It's true. And I felt that it's incredibly timely based upon all of the unrest that we currently have in society. And we've gotten to this point where we're attacking and going after people versus debating the ideas. And the fact that Scalia and uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg could have had such a friendship, even though they had diametrically opposed viewpoints, they could still sit down and have understanding of each other's viewpoints and be friends. And I wish there was more of that today. Yeah. Justice Scalia was one of Brian's closest friends, and it in fact inspired him to write a book called Nino and Me. And you get a glimpse into the relationship between Scalia and Ginsburg 
And then I think all goes back to that hallmark idea of people can have bad ideas, but that doesn't make them a bad person. Now, of course, they would disagree that the other, you know, their idea was good or bad, but there was never disrespect. There was mutual appreciation. And I do think that that dynamic is sorely missing in today's dialogue. But, you know, again, same thing, going back to our mom and dad, uh, mother saying that it doesn't matter what it is that you want to do. There is something about you that makes it so the odds don't apply. So what that enables you to do is to say, oh, well, yeah, I, I know it's maybe challenging to do, but I got this, right? And then dad, with his kind of, I distilled down the life lessons to those two basic ideas. Dad's, you know, basically that if you're going to make a mistake, you make it as big and as loud and as hairy as you possibly can. Because if you fail to take the chance, you'll never truly know what it feels like to drink in the success of having done something that others didn't have the courage to do. So I think those two things combined are pretty valuable lessons. And it's an idea that I've done my best to get across to my kids. But you asked about Canyon, Texas and my kids today. I feel bad that they didn't have the same opportunity to be as carefree, I think, as I was as a kid. When you just got on your bike and you just rode all day, you wanted to ride down to the square, you could do that. There was no fear that violence was going to befall you or that people were going to take advantage of you. It was really kind of like Mayberry RFD. That sounds really idyllic. Oh, it was. It was remarkable. And, you know, of course, looking back, you find out there was some other stuff going on underneath. But as a kid, you didn't know that. And when I left Canyon in 1984, growing up in that small town, I, at that point, I, I wanted to be the big guy. I wanted to live in the big city. I wanted to go to New York and work for ABC, which I was fortunate enough to do. Same thing with LA, working you know, at KISS FM with these. What I didn't realize when I left 1984, and I didn't know that my life had been missing until I stumbled upon it again here in Columbia, Tennessee, was the value of community, where it's so gratifying to be in a small town community where you know the pharmacist by name, where you say hello to the people you meet and, and uh, you have the sense that we're all pulling together. That's, I'd miss that. I completely understand that. I grew up in a, in a smaller town, a desert community. I don't think it was as small as, as Canyon, Texas, but yeah, you, I could go out, my parents after school, go ride my bike until the sun came down. My parents didn't worry about me. You'd go down the street and hang out with your friends. And there wasn't, and I'm sure you're right. There was other things going on that we were probably unaware of, but it definitely felt to be so much safer and so much more comfortable then. And I do miss that. And I think, unfortunately, big cities have lost a lot of that or maybe never even had it. And I think too, that, you know, as far as that innocence, social media is just such a, a I think a downfall for a kid's ability to make a mistake and not have it replayed again and again on YouTube or shared among friends or, you know, it used to be that if I made a mistake, the only people that knew about it really were the ones that were there. It's an excellent point. And now you do something silly and it just lives on forever and ever. Yeah. I think that kids are, we never worried about cyber bullying. We never worried about, uh, I think a lot of issues now that kids today do. It's a, a really good point. What did your parents do professionally? So my parents met uh, in band. <laughs> my father was a band and orchestra director. He taught at West Texas State University for all total 1963 till 2000. 
gosh, I don't even know, maybe seven, 10, something like that. So a long, long time, but he has always been in music education. My mom, she sat second chair to my father. She just thought he was it. Uh, in fact, she went back and told her friends, she goes, I met the Gary Garner. You know? <laughs> That's so cute. And, you know, it's such a blessing that they had that wonderful relationship. Sadly, my mom passed away in 1994, and it's been really problematic for my dad. I know that he lives just wishing that he could go back to those glory days in 1975 or something like that. And I know, I know it's really hard for him. My mom made such an impact. She was the true matriarch of the family and the eternal optimist and dreamer. And I think that what I'd like to think a part of her lives on in me, I'm not nearly as good at it as she was, but... Mother was the consummate idea person, but unlike many, when mom had an idea, it wasn't just the, the launching point for something. It was an idea with a beginning, a middle, and an end, and all the steps in between of how you would achieve that. And, you know, I know that my husband, Eric, and, and you know, my family get on to me because I, I am proud to give out, you know, a hundred different, different ideas every single day. I'm sure they get sick and tired of like, yeah, you got it. Okay. I got it. <laughs> if once in a while you find one that, that has legs, like after midnight or, you know, then this, this mule house that we'll talk about in a bit, that's how you know it has real sustenance to it or, you know, the ability to, to become reality. But anyway, I'm sorry. I keep, I go off on different No, tangents. I love it. I find it completely fascinating. So you are well-loved. Sounds like your parents are both very creative and that's where your, your love of music came from. You play any instruments when you were a kid? I did. I did. And it was not the one that I wanted to play. I'll admit that to you. Uh, it was flute. And <laughs> dad was first chair. Mom was second chair. Uh, when it came time for us to, to get into band, you know, you, there was no option. At sixth grade, you either went to choir or you went into band. We were not given a choice. We were told. And uh, I think I kind of fought that. But at the same time, I was lucky. I was uh, first chair All-State when I was a sophomore in high school. Oh, wow. So you're a talented, uh, talented player. I had my day. You know, I, I think it's really vexing for my dad because it came so easy for me because I hated to practice. I, I credit not having to deal with stage fright. I credit that to those years of performing and, you know, performing solos on stage and all that kind of stuff. So it really gave me a, a good foundation for being in front of people. And it also, the, the music background, I think, provided me with the uh, ability to understand that conversation is music and that it has a natural beat to it. And I, I get so irritated sometimes when people do an interview and then they edit themselves without understanding that if you don't leave that breath in, you are effectively you know, doing a poor musical edit. And it's so patently obvious. And I think that though listeners may not be able to put their finger on exactly what it is, but they can often, I think, walk away from an over-edited interview with the feeling that that sounded, you know, inauthentic. I agree completely. We have two things and we have a lot of things in common, but I'm going to give you two right now. My parents were both musicians and my father was a piano player and my mom was a singer. And the person that was singing with my dad, he was about to do a show, ended up having to back out and my mom filled in for the person who was supposed to sing, and that's how they actually met. And they didn't, unfortunately, go on professionally to to sing and play the piano. My dad ended up becoming a physician and so forth, but music was always very uh, a big part of them. And back to what you were saying about the, the editing, uh, my business partner, Andy, 
he believes 100% the way that you believe that the best producers have a music background because they understand that rhythm. Yeah. And not only that, I mean, it even goes as far as saying, you know, I will, if I have to do a pickup on something, I always go back mid-sentence of the one before because as your mouth is getting ready to form either a consonant or a, a vowel, there is a difference that rings into that. So you can't edit the breath going into a, a word that starts with the letter D. You can't edit that breath into one that starts with the letter A. I know a lot of people are saying that is just way too in the weeds. But I think that, that people have to make a determination for themselves. Every single thing that you or I do, from the moment that it is done and the moment that it leaves our control, that is going to continue to represent you throughout. If you are really careful about your reputation, if you really have a true call to excellence, you will take every single step necessary to ensure that every single piece of everything that goes out that represents you is done with the utmost of care. So I will slave away over an edit or I'll go back and I'll punch it in. And if the, if the mic EQ doesn't match up or whatever, then I'll go into isotope or, uh, and, and then I'll you know, change that to match the room ambiance. I, I did get a little crazy with it sometimes. But the end result is that's how your career is built. It's built of all those little minuscule decisions that if you do your job well, when someone hears your name, they understand, oh, there's someone who does it right. 100% agree. I look at Disney as an example that we use here. And you think of the details at Disneyland versus another amusement park and everything has been painted. All of the lights, they're, you know, if one's burned out, they replace it. All the flowers are blooming in the flower beds. And those small details, they add up to a much better product at the end of the day that, to your point, lives on. And I think more so today than ever. Yeah, anything we build, you know, if, if you're building your dream house or whatever it is, you know, people may not necessarily walk into that space and say, oh, my gosh, I, I love the way that you instead of going with a textured wall, you went with a smooth sanded drywall. Uh, they shouldn't necessarily be able to call that out, but they should just know that when the, the whole collective effort is taken in, it's just different. It's just better. And they may not be able to know exactly why. They don't need to. The, the, the real genius is in hiding your hand, uh, but it just having a certain quality that speaks volumes. I, I love that about you. One other quick story I'll share, but Steve Jobs was so relentless about the details that he wanted the inside of the computers to look immaculate and laid out perfectly. And people couldn't understand why would it matter. No one's going to see the inside of the computer other than someone taking it apart to, to work on it. And it didn't matter because he knew that it wasn't right on the inside, therefore it should be. And even his factories, he would go over to China to make sure that the factories were well-painted and kept immaculate. It was all about the details. And do you want to know proof of why that was an important decision? Because you just told that story. <laughs> That's a good point. That's a really good point. Dead serious. If that story made its way out, that tells you that there was a level of care and attention to detail on you know, Steve Jobs' behalf that put him at an elevated state. Yeah. If he hadn't done that, you, you never would have heard it. People, people would tell the tale of like, oh my God, this guy was just like so over the top with it. But right now, what you and I get from that is here's a guy who is known as a creative, the most, one of the most creative minds ever, but that is what built Apple Computer. 
So don't accept good enough. I'll never forget when we first started after midnight, one of our employees had to do with a promo and it just wasn't right. And I do think it was something quite similar to what we're talking about, an edit that didn't quite match up or a music edit that wasn't, you know, there are four beats in a bar and he's editing from two to three or whatever. It just wasn't right. And I said, no, it's still not it. It's still not it. And he was exasperated. He goes, well, it's good enough. And I said, whoa, hold on a second. There is no such thing as good enough. It is right or it is not. And if people listen to our show and they hear something that is not right, they don't say, oh, because you, the production director, you know, made a poor edit here. They say, God, Blair had this promo on. It really kind of sucked. You know, and so at the point that you really kind of start uh, having a lot of different people and their work ethic uh, working its way into what you're building as your own personal brand, you really have to be vigilant over that as well. Makes a tremendous amount of sense. I, I couldn't couldn't agree more. So you're in Canyon, Texas. How do you get your first radio gig? How does that come to be? Every single thing I've ever done in my life, Chachi, with the exception of my kids, is related to cars. I started collecting cars when I was 11 years old, and that was after two years of hassling my parents uh, that I wanted to buy a car. And like, what nine-year-old kid needs to buy a car? It's like, oh, I want to have one. I want to work on it. And I just had this all-consuming passion with cars, uh, so much so that I, my parents had said no that I couldn't do it. So I started ordering parts from J.C. Whitney for a 1944. And they're like, why are you getting an alternator for a 1944? Sorry, I'm going to build one. <laughs> like, you are... Why would you order an alternator first? And then in shop class, I thought I was going to build one out of wood. I never got past the glove box door. <laughs> <laughs> but it's a really great glove box door. Um, and then I started collecting hubcaps. And by the time that I had approaching a thousand hubcaps in our garage at the house, hanging on the walls and everywhere, dad said, okay, okay, you can buy a damn car. So <laughs> at the age of 11, I mowed lawns. And with $50, I bought a 1964 Dodge from JW Pinkett in Amarillo, Texas. And, uh, Got it back to the house, had a knocking rod on, I heard it run one time. Uh, and, I, you know, it kind of became my, my passion. I was passionate about cars. So cars have always been a big thing for me. I turned 57 last week. And at this point in my life, collectively, over the course of my life, I've owned in excess of 300 cars. Oh, my gosh. Typically never more than like 16 to 18. We're at 18, 17 right now. I sold one recently. But so cars are the guiding force for all of this. And it was... My senior year in high school, I had started my first corporation, actually, when I was 15, and it was a car detailing company before those really became a thing. And I had four college kids that worked for me, and I would come home from school, and mom would leave a note on the bar that I needed to go to Ron Clark Ford and pick up a new trade-in that it was just coming in. I had to turn it around so they could put it on the lot. So I'm running these cars. I became the front man for the business, and then I had these college guys doing the the labor for me, and, and I did it as well. And that allowed me to kind of fuel this desire to buy cars. And it also gave me the chance to drive all kinds of different cars, which I love that. But there was a fellow that lived down at the end of the block who owned a Peacock Blue 1957 Thunderbird with a white porthole, porthole roof on it. I loved that car and I really, really wanted to buy it. He was in his driveway and I was talking to him about it one day, trying to convince him to sell it to me. And he said, no. But we had a nice long chat about the car, all fine. So I came home from school the next day. This man's name, by the way, Jack Aldridge. And there was a note on the bar that mom had taken a, a call from Jack saying that he wanted me to go to his office. 
to see him. I thought, terrific, he's gonna sell me the car. So I got my checkbook, I drove to the address. His office was a radio station. He was the owner of KHBJ AM in Canyon, Texas, and also the FM that they launched, KHBQ, Q107 at the time. And I said, hey, Jack, you're gonna sell me the car? He said, what? No, no, I, I was listening to you speak yesterday in the driveway. I think you have a really good voice and you should try and be on the radio. I'm like, what? He said, no, seriously, come, come here. And he pulled me into a room, which I later would find out was called a production room. They did commercials <laughs> there. And he sat me down in front of a microphone and he hit, hit play and record on the Tascam and gave me uh, this copy for a Mexican food restaurant in Amarillo. And I read it. He said, hold on a second. Hit stop. And he goes out of the room and he comes back in. He said, this is Tony. This is Tony Mathis, who was the program director. And he said, this is the kid that I was telling you about. Listen to this. And he rolled it back and he hit play. And Tony was like, yeah. So he said, would you be interested in being on air? I thought, I, you know, I, he said, listen, just do me a favor. I'm going to put you on. You can take the 6 p.m. to sign off on the AM station and just give it a go. Didn't tell me what to say, anything. He just showed me how to queue up a record and how to, you know, the index cards, the music, and you play an A here and recurrent and then a B or whatever. Uh, and so I went on the air and I did it. I was a little scared, but, you know, again, the door was open, so I walked through. And the next day at school, I wasn't necessarily like the cool kid, and I had my fair share of bullying back in the day. And I walked through the uh, I walked through the school, and, you know, like some of these jocks that used to pick on me, they'd be like, hey, yeah. Uh, Heard you on the radio yesterday. I said, oh, yeah. <laughs> well, as a matter of fact, yes, I was on the radio yesterday. I, you know. So you had immediate street cred at high school. Well, a little bit. But more importantly, after that one-time thing, Jack came back and he said, I'm going to put you on the FM doing uh, 7 to midnight, and I'll pay you 600 bucks a month. And to my high school mind, that's a new Corvette. Heck, yeah, it is. And so I, I got a new Corvette and I bought a, oh my a Audi God. 5000 and I only did it for the cars. While you're in high school, you've got a new vet, mm-hmm. an Audi 5000 yep. and you're on the air. I mean, oh my God. And so somehow uh, a tape made its way. I was in my third month on air. Uh, my brother lived in New York City at the time. And when I had gone there, there was a station called WINY. New York's 97 WINY. It was an AC station. Pete Salant was the program director. And they played the kind of music that I wasn't hearing back in Canyon, Texas. So I had hit record on that. And this is before I ever got into the the thing with Jack or approached about being on air. But I used to drive around Canyon, Texas in my 78 Pontiac Grand Prix, listening to that cassette tape out of New York City, feeling like I was, you know, all that because I'm listening to Y. And at one point, once I got into radio or once Jack had given me that chance, I remember I got, wait, I got that old recording of the station out of new york and there was a guy named steve o'brien who is arguably the finest jock i ever heard i mean i just i worship the ground that this man walks on uh and he out of the kindness of his heart i heard they had given the request line number and there in canyon texas i'm hitting just redial 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 and he picks up and I said, is this Steve O'Brien? He said, yes, it is. I said, my name is Blair Garner. I'm from Canyon, Texas, and I've been in radio for three months. I want to see if I could send you a tape. 
(laughs) So he said, well, of course. So I sent him a tape and very shortly thereafter with the NBC letterhead, because this was, you know, WNBC, uh, WINY, I get this really thoughtful, generous critique from Steve O'Brien. And I was on air. I was doing my basic impersonation of Steve O'Brien, but it helped me to learn, helped me to leapfrog so that I didn't have to make a mistake along the way. I just kind of, you know, imitated and kind of landed at this different place. But within the first, I get maybe off in the timing, but I'd been on radio for three months and I was given the opportunity to do uh, work for KAFM in Dallas, Texas, John Shambi. What a jump. So you literally within a handful of months, never being in front of a microphone, you're given an on-air shift, you're doing nights, you've now made contact in New York, and now you get an opportunity in Dallas. I mean, talking about, remember they used to have the leap of the week? Talking about the leap of the week, my gosh. <laughs> been a very blessed man, and I'm so grateful. And, and you know, I think that there's been such kindness extended to me on, on behalf of Steve O'Brien. And then, you know, John Shambi, when I first uh, met him, I remember he, he wanted me to come down and I met with him and I said, it's okay if I bring my parents. And so, you know, I did, who goes to a job interview with your parents, but you know, it was Mr. Thompson, music director, Pete Thompson and John Shambi, who was the program director. And I went to lunch with them and, and your parents are there and my parents. <laughs> that is the sweetest thing. Did I, you, you drive in your- No, you know what I drove? I drove by that time. Uh, I only kept the I, cars would switch very commonly for me. And I, I think I, I did still have the vet, but I also had a 1980 10th anniversary black gold edition 280ZX. My gosh. Amazing cars. Those have really gone up in value as of late, by the way. Yeah, limited number. Yeah. That, that edition, yeah. That's a great car. Really talking about cars quickly, and it gave me chills. But my first business was auto detailing. And I had an auto detailing business called Splash Auto Detailing. And still to this day on my American Express card, I've got the Splash name is kind of just a a keepsake and a reminder. Yes, I'll send you some pictures. And my dad literally just earlier this week sold his 56 T-Bird. And you were looking at the 57. It was red, not the turquoise, but it had the portholes and the uh, Continental Kit on the back and the bullets on the front. Well – Full full circle story, I ended up in 1998 buying Frank Sinatra's 56 Thunderbird. No way. And it was the uh, turquoise with the white porthole roof. Oh he, at one gosh. point, he had uh, painted the car black when he had it. Uh, and then a guy named Jack Sisk, who invented Ready Mix Concrete, did a full Concour restoration on it. And uh, I bought that, and I bought a 62 M-Series uh um, Thunderbird Sports Roadster from him, the the triple aspirated uh, 390, oh, uh, which is a really limited edition car. But anyway, I bought those from the Jack Sis collection. So you did get your T-Bird. I got my T-Bird. You know, it's funny because I own Frank's T-Bird. I own the Jackson 5 Family Station Wagon, a 1971 Cadillac uh, limousine that had been converted into a station wagon with the Vista Cruiser uh, top on it. The old. Oh, how cool. And I didn't ever try to do this, but it just happened. I bought uh, uh, Hugh Hefner's 62 Cadillac convertible. Oh, my gosh, the cars that you have. And I love the provenance, by the way. 
it just I, I didn't ever set out to do it that way, but it just kind of fell my way. Oh, that is that is the coolest. And when we get to the Mule House, I want to talk about if the cars will be part of, part of the Mule House. But it's it, Mule House is due to the cars. Okay, good. I'm excited because I, I have that in my notes to talk more about cars. Let's go back to Shambi. So he he hires you in Dallas. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're 17 at this point. I was 18, I think. Eighteen. <laughs> and uh, then I remember. It was really strange because I got a job offer then from Wash FM in, in Washington, D.C. Again, it's like this crazy story. I don't know how the tape got to, to then. John Mullen is the, the program director and flew me up to meet him, and, and they hired me for 7 to midnight. And that experience, it was my first time out of my state, Texas, and uh, I got homesick. And I learned a lot about living your life in the right way at the right time. That experience in DC was challenging because, you know, I said goodbye to basically everyone I knew. Um, I was well paid, but I didn't know anybody. And I was too naive to really go out and make any good friends. I made one. What it told me was that I was doing things in the wrong order. My dad had always said that, you know, these opportunities are going to be there. Your talent's not going to leave. You need to get your degree. And I said, dad, you know, you don't hire people based on, you know, it's, it's like a model. You wouldn't hire a model because, oh man, she's beautiful. But did you see her GPA? No, there's TNA, not GPA. Uh, so, <laughs> but the hallmark of, of having a degree, I ended up finally listening to what dad had been saying. And I quit DC and I went to Austin and I finished my degree there at the University of Texas. And I got my degree in advertising. I've never worked one single day in advertising. But the reason that that was important is because later, you know, especially when I was trying to get the venture capitalists to invest in After Midnight to, to you know, financially back my dream, um, the fact that I had gone through and finished my degree, showed them determination, the ability to start something, the ability to finish something. And, you know, it's kind of the same conversation I had recently with my son that, oh, sure, you may be, you know, terrific at this, uh, the ability to do IT or, or whatever it is, he's, he's a computer nut. I said, but I really do still think that you need to get your degree because a potential employer is always going to look at whether or not you have the ability to start something and then finish something. And for me, that degree, I believe, was what lent credence to my efforts at, at launching After Midnight. And, and then also the, the marketing aspect of it, when we, when we launched, that was all 100% uh, my pushing. You know, we spent over $250,000 in marketing for R&R in our first quarter. Wow. We were spending more on marketing than artists were having spent by their labels. We had full double-page four color ads and it told the story. And I said, listen, once the idea gets out there for this wealth of opportunity in the overnight day part, other people are going to make a run at it. So we got to be the firstest with the most, we got to play hard. And we did. And it was funny because I guess it was six months in, it would later make its way back that ABC at the time saw the growth of After Midnight Six months, we already had over 200 affiliates. Right. It became the fastest, I believe, the fastest growing syndicated show ever. You had over, like over 100 affiliates in just a handful of months. Three months. And it was 160 the next month. And we outpaced uh, 
the man who would later become my friend, Rush Limbaugh, uh, when they launched his show. But the end result was when ABC said, we're watching this market evolve and there could be something to it, they launched an internal study to find out whether there was room. Three different people on their staff and they all came back and they said, he already owns it. Amazing. So you literally branded and captured that segment in just six months to the point where there wasn't any room for anyone else to even come in and try to erode some of your audience. That's incredible. Yeah. You want to be a, you want to be a category killer. If you're going to do it, do it without excuse. Uh, make the mistake as big and as loud and hairy as you possibly can. Again, great advice and counsel for your your dad to go back to school and to to stop because I know and we grew up kind of in, in similar times, a lot of radio people that didn't go and, and get their degree. And it was very important to my parents that I do. And I'm very fortunate and glad that I did in, in hindsight. And I think it's helped a lot with our marketing overall maturity. And I'm sure you'll join me. I mean, there, there are no aspersions to be cast on our end to anyone who, who didn't go that route. Uh, everyone's path is unique unto themselves. Uh, but that was, for my path, that was an important part. Yeah. My dad, I remember him kind of giving me some advice and saying to me, no one's on their deathbed going, I wish I didn't go to college. You know, And I think that is uh, lar- largely true. And so you go to University of uh, Texas, Austin, and then you've got stops in Houston, and then you go to PLJ in New York. So it did not hinder your the, the rocket ship that became your career. So h- tell me a little bit about New York. Well, uh, first before we get that, just this is kind of, again, another tease for the Mule House. When I was in school in Austin, I finally got my priorities straight. The local CHR station had found out that this guy who'd worked in Washington and Dallas was there. They reached out, Barry Kay with KHFI, it was K96 then, reached out and said, would you like to do some uh, part-time work? Yeah, sure. So I just did weekends there. Uh, that station was owned by the legendary Dick Oppenheimer, who is part of the Texas Radio Hall of Fame. And his son, Michael Oppenheimer, was uh, doing sales. And I think he's doing some like news stuff or whatever. I still remember this kind of long-haired hippie kid pulling up in a Volkswagen convertible. I mean, he was Austin, right? And that was uh, Michael, the son. Uh, he is today the general manager for the Mule House. No kidding. Yeah. We That's just reconnected a, recently. Oh, how cool is that? A full turnaround. That's amazing. So I got my degree in marketing or advertising. And as I began looking at the introductory salaries in that field, it was just like it was a third of what I'd already made in Washington, D.C. And so I thought, you know what, just for grins, I'm going to send out a couple of air checks. And uh, I sent one to KHBQ in, in Houston. I got a call back. Bill Richards called me and they hired me to do middays there. And at that time, there was, remember the Birch ratings? Sure. The telephone ratings. So took middays on. The Birch numbers really saw a tremendous increase uh, in for midday. I, I don't know what I did. I don't think it could have been the music pick. But anyway, so, but it was a big change for what they had previously had. And the the PD at KRBE was none too happy that there was this big change in the in the uh, the makeup of the Houston market there for the CHR listeners. So they started recommending me for jobs outside of the market, and that <laughs> that is how I landed at Larry Berger's desk on Larry Berger's desk uh, in New York City. So again, third month or something about three months. Third month of working middays at KBEQ, 
Q93, John Lander, tremendous morning guy. Couldn't have been a better friend. Uh, but I get a call at seven in the morning there in Houston and uh, answered the phone and said, yeah, is this Blair Garner? I said, this is he. He said, yeah, my name is Larry Berger with ABC in New York. <laughs> yeah, right. That's funny. <laughs> who is this? He goes, no, this this is Larry Berger. I said, I don't know who you are. That's funny. <laughs> well, it really was Larry. And he said, so listen, um, someone that you don't know there in the market has sent you my way. I'm looking for some new air staff. And I've heard a lot about you. And I'd kind of like to hear, you know, see whether or not you'd be interested in moving to New York. And I was like, Oh, geez, Mr. Berger, that's really nice of you to call and everything, but I just got here in Houston. I wouldn't feel right about that. And so thank you so much. I really appreciate the interest, but I couldn't do that. And so he said, well, at least would you please just send me a tape? I just want to hear. I said, okay, I can do that. So I did it. And I called my dad, my mom immediately thereafter, and I told him about it. And I said, dad said, you turn him down? <laughs> I was thinking the same thing. I said, well, of course, I didn't feel like it was the right thing to do. And he goes, Blair, you got to at least hear what they're saying. <laughs> so in an effort to kind of renew maybe a little bit of interest, I FedExed the tape to Larry. And uh, so he got it first thing, New York time. And again, dead asleep, phone rings, it's Larry. He said, and Larry said, hey, got your tape. You're what I'm looking for. I really want you to think about coming to work in New York. Saying, I, seriously, thank you so much, but I, I don't know that I feel right about that. Because, do me a favor. I'll just fly you up here just for an afternoon. Just fly up, look at it as a lunch, a chance to come to New York City, and uh, that's that. I said, well, okay, as long as you understand that that's all it is. Right. <laughs> and he said, okay. So, because I, I believe in doing the right thing, right? And uh, naive little Canyon, Texas kid. I go into Bill Richards' office, my program director there in Houston. I said, you're not going to believe what happened to me today. And he said, what? I said, I got this call from ABC in New York. You know a guy named Larry Berger? He goes, yeah, I know who Larry Berger is. <laughs> he said, yeah, he's he heard about me. And, he, and he's like, what did you tell him? I said, well, I, I, you know, I didn't really feel right. But, you know, he's, so I sent him a tape, but he still really liked it a lot. And he said, oh, okay. And I'm just so naive to the to the way that things work. So I ended in by the time it was done, I turned Larry down three times. Unbelievable. It became like one of those things that I literally had to do. And in fact, Bill Richards told me, he said, you know what? You can't turn that down. Now the the guy who was the general manager, and I'll not share his name out of he was none too happy about it. And in the in the break room screamed at the top of his lungs to me. He said he said, I fucking hate you. He said, if I had a rope, oh you'd be hanging from the side of this building right now. Oh, my God. And it was, you know, that was really hard for me to hear because sure. I had not been dealt with in that way. And uh, I remember it was Jim Kerr. I told Larry what they were saying in Houston. And Jim Kerr, God bless, man. What You talk about the best of the best. He called me and I, you know, he said, hey, this is Jim Kerr. I'm the morning guy here at Y&Y. And I hear that you're kind of dealing with some tough stuff down there. He said, I just want to let you know that no matter how much anger you may be feeling right there on this end, there's every bit as much, if not more enthusiasm to welcome you to your new family. Wow. And uh, so that was that. So, yeah, my, my stint in Houston was for three months. And then I went to work at uh, at uh, New York at WPLJ. 
going back to your mom's quote that the odds don't apply to you, it couldn't be any more true. I mean, to go work at PLJ is a once in a lifetime opportunity. And here you're just fresh out of college and you've got this amazing job. What was it like to work at such a legendary radio station and crack the mic there for the first time? You know, uh, I was, of course, um, there's, there's certain bliss that comes from naivety. Uh, you know, if you've ever had a conversation with someone that you didn't find out until later just how who they were, I think there's a certain uh, beauty in that. I, I don't think that I really understood at the time just how unnatural that rise was, how, how uh, blessed. Um, it really came into focus when I was part of the PLJ sign-off, and um, God, that was so hard. I wasn't actually there on the final day when race was hosting that final show, but I was standing in my driveway listening on my AirPods uh, online and I was just crying. Yeah, it was heartbreaking. I never worked there, but I was able to walk the hallways a few times and uh, they used our, our imaging libraries, but what, what, what a special station and the, the history, just the talent it was. was unbelievable. And listen, I mean, that's, that to me is, is one of the real joys in the whole thing As I got to the, the thing that I, I think is remarkable that I hope everyone hears is that there are good people all around you and there are kind people all around you and the people that worked at plj were you know i i think of jim kerr i think of bobby valentine i think of fast jimmy roberts i think of just so many people who were so kind and so welcoming and i think they knew that i was this small town Texas kid kind of out of my element, but they, they granted me the grace to kind of grow into what it was and ultimately to, to do afternoon drive there. I had a nine month period under which I worked for Scott Shannon. And as I sit here today, I give Scott so much credit for anything that I may have been able to achieve post working for him at PLJ. Those nine months were boot camp. There were sometimes challenging moments in working with Scott, but I'm so deeply grateful for that because he gave me so much during that time. I don't know that I had the the wherewithal to fully appreciate it then because uh, ours was at that point kind of a contentious relationship, but as I look back now and, you know, fortunately Scott and I are in a terrific place. I, I just, I, I can't say enough wonderful glowing things about Scott. What an education. And I think when we're younger and I'm certainly guilty of it, we don't, it, it's hard to sometimes take direction or advice from someone who is, is older than us from a, a senior, if you will, because I think we tend to think we know it all or we don't have quite the the understanding. I don't know if our brains have opened up enough to uh, even fully appreciate it, but to have, talking about an education, there's probably no one better to give you a, a morning show education or just an air talent education than Scott Shannon, who not only is a legendary on air talent, but also a legendary programmer. And it wasn't that I doubted uh, what he was teaching me. I think that the way that he messaged his knowledge was unlike any other at that point in his career was a little more harsh and direct 
you know, I think that I'm the kind of person that that it's it's hard for me to I'm a people pleaser, which is my Achilles heel. And that means that sometimes I will do things that I just in an effort to keep everybody happy. Sometimes I'll, I'll shoot myself in the foot. And so it's, it's hard for me if I don't hit the marks with someone. And, and my thing with Scott kind of went back and forth. I felt that just from a personhood standpoint, I didn't relate to his background of having been raised, I think, in a military family and then just a much different life experience that brought him to the heights that he reached. And, you know, I was always pleased and thank you. I one of my most defining moments was when Steven Tyler and Joe Perry came in to do a guest spot on the show. And you know, I was like, hi, Mr. Perry. Hi, Mr. Tyler. You know, and they're, they're all like, ah! and, and <laughs> it's funny because I later had the chance to really have a nice sit down conversation with Steven and, and I told him that he goes, dude, he said, you know, I was probably so out of my gourd. Who knows what I'd taken that day. Yeah. <laughs> it was that moment that kind of let me know that, you know, that, you know what, maybe CHR, maybe I'm a little too square for that. And so for me to go to country where people do say please and thank you and, you know, like somebody would come and be a guest on our show and I wrote them a thank you note and not only to the artists, but also to the people who helped to, uh, to book them, you know, that, that Southern kind of the, 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 the idea of uh, manners, it's, it's, it's really well received within the, the country format. And that's, I think where I really came home in a lot of ways. And before we get to country, and I find this so incredibly fascinating to be able to work with Scott. And I think to your point, there's no doubt that he's a much different person today than he was there. Much like Howard Stern, I think he's evolved a lot over the years, which has been neat to see. And I think uh, incredible just how his career has transformed and to go from the way that he would look at pirate radio and then PLJ and all the things that he did and now to be on WCBS and still just doing an amazing job is, is incredible. Nobody is cheering louder for Scott Shannon than Blair Garner. If he has taught anyone, he, first of all, how, who cannot say that they haven't been inspired by the career of Scott? I often think about his move to CBS and the fact that he was working in a situation where I don't know that his genius was fully valued in such a way that it should have been. And when he landed at CBS, he found his family and he found his opportunity. And he was able to again, again give listeners what it was that they most wanted from Scott. And uh, he is just, he's a freak of nature. And I'm so blessed, so grateful that I, you know, had that nine months experience. How does that then transform to moving out here and doing afternoons at Kiss? I mean, to work. PLJ and now to KISS and Market 1 and 2 in two of the biggest stations in the history of radio. I'd love to hear more about it. So you mentioned that Scott is a much different person today than he was then. And I will heartily concur with that. And having you uh, make that entry point, then I'll, I'll give you a little more color to the story. I was in the middle. I just signed a new three-year deal with ABC. And I think I was just at one year in. Mitch Dolan was our general manager and Tom Cuddy was the program director uh, until Scott came. And then Tom got bumped up and then Scott became the PD. 
Uh, but I was, you know, working closely with Tom and thought the world of Mitch. Uh, they had been a successful team at, at Pro FM. I really got those guys. I, I loved them. And one of the best bosses I ever had uh, is, is Tom Cuddy and Mitch Dolan. Uh, and, and then also Craig Kitchen. More on that later. So I felt that the way the environment in which I was working under Scott's direction, it was one where Scott's genius was also counterbalanced by maybe some personal challenges. I don't know, but it was not, let's say, I, I would assume it was not perhaps the best time in his life. And so it made for an environment where I felt myself changing. I knew that that environment was beginning to have an impact on who I was as a person. And I didn't like the person that it was making me feel as if I were, you know, starting to, to take on some of that anger and some of that completely contrary to my makeup. And so I asked uh, Tom Cuddy, I said, listen, I want out. He said, what? You just signed a new deal. I said, this is not, this is not a good fit. I'm, I'm, this is not good for me as a person. And they said, uh, listen, why don't you go to dinner with Mitch and let's talk about it. And so Mitch took me to this really nice steakhouse in New York. And he said, you know, the, the problem, Blair, is that, and of course I was Skywalker at the point. So he said, the problem, Sky, is that Scott doesn't feel that he understands you. And I said, do you know why he doesn't understand me? I said, he doesn't understand me because the principles that drive me are truth, integrity, and honesty. And I don't even know if he really knows what those mean. Now, in retelling this, I'm sorry it sounds so gruff because again, please counterbalance this with the fact that I stand today, just I'm the world's biggest card-carrying cheerleader for Scott Shannon. But at that time, in that specific moment of time, that was the environment in which I was working. He said, well, can, will you do me a favor? I'm trying to work it all out. Will you give it three months? He said, if you, at the end of three months, still feel that this is not right for you, then I will let you out of your contract. I said, okay, great. So I went home that night and I marked that date on my calendar. And on that morning I walked in and I said, well, today's the day. He said, what do you mean? I said, it's three months today and I want out. He said, are you serious? I said, yeah. He said, so have you lined up a deal? I said, Mitch, I can't do that. You know that, that I can't have any kind of negotiations with any other radio station because then you're going to sue them for tampering with the contract. Thank you to my brother, the attorney. And so I didn't. I had nothing. I quit cold turkey. And I flew home to Texas. I had my 1976 Porsche 911 that I'd driven in college in storage. I threw a new battery in it. I drove to Los Angeles. As I drove into the city, I called, funny story, it turned out to be my former program director at Q93 or 93Q in Houston, Bill Richards, who was the PD there in, in, at KISS FM in LA now. I said, hey, Bill, so uh, look at this, you're, you're in LA now. I said, yeah, 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 what are you doing? I said, well, I'm just driving in. He said, you're kidding me, what, how long are you here for? And I said, well, I'm moving here. He said, what? I said, yeah, I decided that uh, you know I left PLJ and I want to live in LA. He said, do you have any work? I said, no, but I'd like to. He said, well, come on in. We'll sign papers. No way. 
as I am driving into LA, the program director of KISS FM, the, the only station that I identified, I thought if, if you're gonna leave New York City, there's really only one station that you can go to that wouldn't be seen as, you know, a sidestep or a downstep. And that's got to be Kiss FM. That is amazing. I went in and uh, he said, listen, I don't have a slot for you right now, but I'm going to put you on uh, every single swing shift I possibly can. And we're going to slide you in as soon as we can. So it was funny because Dees, who I, again, you know, I owe so much to, to Rick Dees. He heard me on air and I had spent so many hours listening to Rigby's in the weekly top 40 and for a long time just again it was kind of my impersonation of, of D's as I got into the CHR thing Rick really liked what he heard when I was on air and he said why don't you you, you come out with me uh come join me in Marina Del Rey I'm gonna take the yacht out we'll <laughs> so I go out to Marina Del Rey and you know this is the the yacht that I think he got some kind of a settlement with Wally Clark or whatever I don't know what it was so here we are cruising around the harbor and he has his own personal chefs making our dinner. <laughs> and he said, uh, you know, I think you just sound great. You know, <laughs> and I said, I said well, thank you so great much. Rick, by the way. <laughs> oh, listen, it's such an honor to be here. And, uh, so it's, it's a funny story. I'll, I'll tell you in a sec, but I actually did D's on air. It got me a cease and desist with Rush Limbaugh and also. No way. Me, yeah. And then I did, I played Rick on air with Scott when he had to go to a urology appointment. <laughs> he said, he said, I want you to host the show as D's. And so I did. And uh, at the end of that show, it's so funny because Mitch Dolan called. He said, Hey, I got a call in here. He said, uh, Phyllis Stark from billboards on the phone. She wants to talk to Rick D's. I said, Oh, Okay. She, she goes, Rick, how are you? Oh, Phyllis, it is such a pleasure to hear your voice. What in the world are you doing, you little spot of sunshine? And uh, that is great. So she says, How in the world did you, you know, come in to, to do fill in for, for Scott? Oh, you know, Scott, longtime friend and legendary broadcaster. <laughs> uh, so it just, you know, it just made sense. And so, you know, we did it for a while and then, you know, we cracked it to Phyllis. It's Sky, actually. But, <laughs> and 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 so funny because true story, Rick had started into the night when I was there in New York at ABC. And sure. it, didn't, it didn't necessarily go as well as he may have wanted. Right. And, and Rush was just lambasting him on air about it and, uh, you know, making a bit out of it. And um, I think that the Rodney King beating had happened, but it had not yet gone to trial in Simi Valley. There was some kind of a big deal going on, and I'm walking through the the hallway for Johnny Donovan, who was uh, uh, the producer for Rush, had said, "Would you do a liner as as D's for Rush?" <laughs> sure, man. Chance to be on Rush Limbaugh's show, sure. So he's. I still remember basically what it was. Well, hello, America. It's Rick D's, and I have to tell you <laughs> that Rush Limbaugh. He is so dead on. God bless him, Rush. You are. The voice of reason, or something <laughs> like that, right? So little did I know, and, and you know, Rush thought it was great, and Johnny put it on the air, and then the next thing we heard, we got a fax from one of the people at D's Creation saying, "Hey, you know, we heard that there's this tape of 
of Rick. We'd love to hear it. Would you send it back to us? So Johnny tells me like, this is awesome. Isn't it crazy? <laughs> oh my God. So we send it down there. And of course the next morning, that's when we get the facts with the cease and desist. <laughs> what I later found out was that Julie, Rick's wife, listened to Rush. And I guess when he came home that day, she said, did you do anything for Rush Limbaugh? He's like, what? <laughs> and, you know, said no. And then uh, Lon, uh, Lon Whalen, I want to say, God, such a nice guy, the writer for, for The Countdown, uh, not a fan of Rush's, heard about that. And of course, like, Rick, how could you do that? Oh, my and God. So when I went in after calling Bill, to, he said, come in and we'll sign papers. Um, I said, hey, I kind of need to tell you something here. He said, what's that? I said, well, you know, when I was working there at PLJ, Rush wanted me to do this. He said, that was you? Oh, my said, God. Yeah. That's hilarious. He, says, he said, you can never tell Rick. I said, seriously? <laughs> he said, I was in the room when that cassette came, and he got it and threw it against the wall. He was furious. <laughs> so... During the entire time of my working at Kiss, and and after Rick, you know, pulling strings to have me moved into afternoons, uh, he never knew that. But don't tell anybody. <laughs> so anyway, you know, but Rick, so he he takes me out on the boat, and this is so so awesome. I just I'm in awe, Deeds. He's so so brilliant. He said, uh, "Can I ask you a question?" This is after he said. I'm going to make a play for you tomorrow. And I'm going to tell them that I want you to be put on afternoons. It's like, no great. Way. And I, you know, I said, uh, I said, so he said, but there's a, there is a price. And I said, okay, what's that? And he said, you have to promise me that you're going to promote the morning show in your afternoon show. I said, done, done. He never knew that. Sure enough, next day I go into the station at this time. Now Jeff White had become the program director. And, uh, so Rick was in the hallway, he pulls me into to these creations office. He goes, I just want to let you know, I just made a big power play for you. <laughs> and I said, you did? He said, yes. I told them that unless they put you on afternoon drive, I will be personally insulted. And so they, <laughs> they will soon be talking to you about this. So I walked out of that little D's creation uh, office and I walked into the programming area and Gwen is the assistant PD there and, sure. and Jeff Wyatt. And Jeff goes, hey, can I see you for a second? I said, yeah, sure. I came inside. He goes, hope Jeff doesn't get mad at me. He said, you know, we really wanted to do something special and different with Afternoon Drive. And we've been listening to a lot of different people and I've given this a lot of thought. And uh, you're the guy that I want to, to take on Afternoons. Wow. <laughs> you know, they didn't know that I knew. So you acted surprised. Yeah. And working there, Kiss, boy, you talk about the opportunity to learn through example of, of Dee's. And Dee's is the guy that taught me the guy that makes the dough is the guy that owns the show. While I had this idea for an overnight day part uh, for a syndicated overnight show, I knew that if I were to then go to premiere and say, hey, listen, I have this idea for show, it wasn't going to be the same thing. Uh, there is a purity in having control over bringing your voice, bringing your vision to bear. And uh, so that is why it took two years to write the business plan. 
I was able to luckily get Rod West, who was at the time ABC Watermarks. Uh, and he was, you know, Shadow Stevens and Bob Kingsley's boss. And uh, he actually left his post to join us at After Midnight. And his credibility lent itself well to when I was trying to get the venture capital together through two doctors at Cedar sinai Hospital, uh, a woman that I happened to meet on the beaches of Cancun. Uh, her husband was the chief of surgery at Cedars. I had come out to LA and I contacted her and I said, hey, I'm in town. She goes, do you want to go to dinner? I said, sure, I'd love to. And being this innocent kid, I go to show up at their beautiful house uh, there in Hancock Park. And I brought a thing of flowers for Cindy. And she goes, oh, come, that is so sweet of you. Come on in. So she's carrying these flowers. And she goes, I'd like you to meet my husband, Leonard. And he goes, so you're the guy. I said, <laughs> I said yeah, I'm, I met your wife uh, down at the beach. And, and uh, <laughs> little did I know that he had told her, if you're going to dinner with this guy, I'm going to dinner with this guy. <laughs> so he had my number and we went to a restaurant off La Brea and uh, he was like, so what are you going to do in L.A.? I said, well, you know, I'm working here at Kiss FM and then I have this idea for it. Oh, tell me your great idea. <laughs> and so, you know, I explained to him that through research, you can show that the daytime audience, you know, overnights, they roughly retain 30 to 35 percent of that. But if you take it to Pittsburgh and Milwaukee and Phoenix, you add it all together, you have a new amalgamation of listeners that have never been, you know, treated well. And he started to lean in and he said, you know, another doctor and I do investments. Uh, we'd be interested in talking to you about this. I said, OK, great. So, Cindy, how's your sister? And I just, you know, tossed <laughs> right. it away because... People say things. He brought it up two more times. And within a day from Cedar sinai letterhead, there was a, a letter from Dr. Leonard McCalca saying, we'd like to fund this project. And uh, so that's how we, we did it. They invested $1.2 million. Uh, we were at about $750,000 in first year where Premier made uh, inroads. They wanted to purchase us. They wanted to pay us 900,000, but we were holding out for a million and they wouldn't do it. So we continued to own it until in uh, two more years, we ended up selling to Premier for 9.2 million. That is incredible. incredible. But as the guy who was not the venture capitalist, I didn't get all that. So, sure. you know, but it was a nice, it was, an, it, you know, it did allow for uh, more fun uh, than I should have had in buying some cars and losing money. What an amazing story. Where did the entrepreneurial side of your upbringing, where did that come from? Because you did the, the auto detailing and you were certainly business minded as well as an incredible talent. So both left brain, right brain. Yeah, well, I wouldn't, the business thing, I, I think that what it is really, I don't know if it's an entrepreneurial bent as much as it is a common thread of seeing something, seeing the beauty in something that others don't see and then bringing it to a place where they do see it. And that uh, shows itself in my belief that every single broken down car I see is, you know, waiting just like that Sarah McLaughlin puppy that needs to be saved, <laughs> you know. I'm the one, the, the, the car is like, I came off the assembly line and somebody was so proud of me once and now I've got weeds growing over me and I'm so embarrassed. But it takes a real vision to be able to see something like that, a diamond in the rough or a – well, and we'll get into the mule house here in a minute, but an abandoned building. Overnight day part, same thing. But it was literally, A, way, way ahead of its time 
And B, to go out and do that and create your own business, I don't think most people would have had the foresight to do it. They would have maybe have done it but would have worked through a syndication company to build the business. I'm really impressed by that. I have to say that ignorance is bliss. And <laughs> I don't think that I knew at the outset exactly what all it would entail. And I didn't have any kind of forethought about what a pivotal uh, machine it would become with respect to songs and the charts. Sure. When we launched, we were out buying our own CDs at Tower Records. And then I got a, an email from Bob Mitchell at Sony at the time. And he said, hey, you know, uh, we hear what you're doing and uh, we m might be able to, to help. So he takes us to, to dinner along with some other regionals from other labels in town. So he's like, we need to know you. And the big takeaway for me was they're going to give us free CD. <laughs> We're not going to have to go buy all the singles. <laughs> and then, of course, you know, very shortly thereafter, we understood about reporting stations. We understood that one spin on our show would equate to a lot of spins. I mean, you could not break a country record without After Midnight. I mean, it got to the point. It could literally determine what song was number one. Yeah. And we could play a song one time and make a chart. Amazing. Absolutely amazing. And so after you sell, was that a hard, I mean, cause here was something you built from the ground up. It was your baby. Was that a hard decision? Was it difficult for you to, to sell? No, no, it wasn't a hard decision, but it was a little bit of a relearning process in a way, because my fingers were in every single aspect of the business. We had 33 employees when we sold. And, uh, you know, I wanted to make certain that all of those people were taken care of. And I fully believed, again, kind of ignorant on my part, but I believed that my people were going to all just be, you know, brought into the new premier fold. But of course, as time wears on, you know, they had their own affiliate relations people. And so I, you know, sadly, I saw some of the people that I love so dearly uh, cut from the team. Uh, that was the challenging aspect of it. And, you know, it was Craig Kitchen, who is the absolute epitome of what a leader and a boss should be, the person who empowers his people, the person who leads by example, the person who makes the difficult decisions the right way, even if it's not in his best interest. I, as, a, as a person, as a moral leader, as a, as a businessman, there is no finer person on this earth than Craig Kitchen. But what Craig told me because there was a little bit of a, you know, relearning period for me. He said, listen, you know, it's important to recall, remember that you sold the car. You are the, still the person behind the wheel, but the keys belong to someone else now. It's oh, a good analogy. And he was right. Everybody knows that the things that make most sense for me are, are car analogies. Yeah. <laughs> I get that completely. I get that completely. Yeah, I've got a tremendous amount of respect for Craig. And uh, he's not only, I think... Uh, He's just great for the business, you know, and the, and the talent he represents. And now with the Radio Hall of Fame too, you know. That's right. He's the chairman of the Radio Hall of Fame. So from there, you transition and you're based in L.A. after midnight. And now you leave and move to Nashville and you decide to, again, reinvent yourself and to do moorings. Yeah, you know, and that's one, one choice that, again, I'm glad that I did it, but it was not the best experience in my life. It took me five and a half years to become a father. One of the most difficult things for me to accept about being gay was what I thought, the reality that I'd never be able to be a kid. I'd be a dad. Uh, but when I sold after midnight and I learned about uh, surrogacy, 
how that is a viable option for a gay man to become a father. I, as a single gay man, went through five and a half years of trying to become a dad, five embryo transfers, five different egg donors, three surrogates. Uh, but finally, on November 26, 2003, my son and my daughter Braxton and Ava were born. So we're living in Calabasas. We're not far away from the Kardashians. We're not far away from Justin Bieber. You know, I was at Jerry's famous deli when Britney Spears came during the Umbrella Days, and just this—you know—it's it's an alternate universe. Sure. And being that small-town Texas kid who wanted to now, as a father, instill the value of saying please and thank you, and you know, common manners and, and treating people with respect, uh, I, I began to realize that the decisions that I was making as a father with my kids, that other parents' decisions of their peers, my kids' peers, uh, was beginning to have an impact on my kids. And please and thank you in Calabasas, not in vogue. So it, it made for an easy decision to move to Nashville, where I felt that that society better bolstered, uh, you know, those choices. And uh, so that's how I wound up in Nashville. The chance to say goodbye to After Midnight was thrilling with potential, but execution wa was a challenge. I so admire what iHeart has done with Bobby is brilliant. First of all, I'm a, I'm a genuine fan of Bobby. I think he's so good for our format and shows what uh, a, a determined spirit can do. So I, I'm a real fan of his, and he's, he's been very, very nice to me as well. But iHeart, you know, to their credit, they put all the chips on Bobby, and they did not waver. And I think that's what you have to do in launching something that's going to become, you know, a, an iconic program. You have to say, this is what it is, and then you have to stay true to that and, you know, not try to become creative by committee. Because again, that was my biggest downfall with the morning show was listening to, you know, I'd have conference calls with the PD New York, and then I'd have another one with the PD of another station, then I've got, you know, uh, network people. And so I had a lot of people offering their thoughts and me being the people pleaser, like, oh, I can do that. Oh, you need me to, okay, I'll do that too. And right. then what ends up is not really true to what you can offer when left to your own defenses. That's what I did with After Midnight. And that was the beauty in that. Uh, I'm extremely grateful for the chance to do that show. I, I, I learned a lot and I, I'm, we did very well. In fact, we beat Bobby at one point, but what happened was there were multiple changes outside mm -hmm. of my control and staffing changes in the show makeup. It went from a good concept to something showing promise. And there were a lot of things that we, I, you know, we got in our own way. Sure. But uh, what I did find was that uh, three years in, my daughter, Ava, who was then 11, said uh, over dinner, she goes, Daddy, you know how you told me that nothing is ever going to be more important than me and Brax? I said, yeah. She goes, I don't feel that. Wow, man. That had to have been a tough, tough thing to hear. So on the, on the phone, you know, the next day with Mike McVeigh, and... Uh, I'm so grateful to Mike because they carved an opportunity for me to go back to the overnight day part. And uh, they had uh, made a run at the overnights with kicks. They had a show called kicking it with kicks and he had about a hundred affiliates. We took that over and we built it to 170. but the landmark or the 
landscape had changed so much with between iHeart and uh, Cumulus that there was no way that an iHeart station was going to carry a Cumulus product and vice versa. First thing that happened when I was, you know, with After Midnight was Cumulus dropped all of the After Midnight shows. I used to go on KH and Ventura, and uh, then it was gone. And, you know, I was sad about that. So it only made sense then that, you know, turnabout's fair play. Sure. Uh, so there was a, a much lower ceiling just because the ownership volume was not as high with Cumulus as, as it was with, with iHeart. But so, yeah, the, the made that change and then went to do the uh, to the overnights thing and, and grew that. And, you know, uh, then they made the decision that they didn't want to continue on with that. So do you feel now and being able to spend more time back at least uh, closer to your family and that that's been a, a nice upside to all of this to be able to be close to your kids? Yeah, you know, because you never get those years back and, you know on your tombstone, if I do my job right, it'll say loving husband, loving father. And uh, it's not going to say, uh, <clears throat> you know, number one morning show or overnight show for six consecutive books or, you know, whatever. The, who, who cares? You want to be a dad. You want to be a uh, father. You want to be a good husband. Uh, the blessing of all of that is that, again, though challenging in the moment, and, you know, I was crestfallen. That's I poured so much into that. Um, and, and that, that was not a part of my experience really. Uh, and, and it was tough, but again, it was exactly what was needed because as we build out this new venture, there is literally no way that I would have been able to do everything at once. Let's get into the Mule House to tee this up. I see you, I guess two years, maybe it was this last, I think two years ago at CRS, and uh, we're catching up, and you tell me that you're basically going to build out a, a venue. And in my naivety, I thought this was, you know, a smaller venue, kind of a bar, you know, place that you would hang out. And so I'm like, well, let me know, man. I'd be interested in investing, and it, this sounds really cool. Little did I know that you were talking about a 55,000 square foot building that used to be a first a prior it was a first baptist church correct mm -hmm. in yeah. columbia and you are completely overhauling this building it looks absolutely spectacular i follow the video series of you guys <laughs> do, you. doing the work i just watched the one about the doors please uh fill me in on what what is the vision and uh, what is happening with the mule house it goes back to what your passion is first of all just quick sidebar the, the way that cars factored into this. We bought a building because I wanted to store the cars there instead of paying rent every month. And I was super excited about it. It was a 1930s uh, grocery store. Brought our architect over and he looked at me and said, you don't have any cars in here. I said, yeah, it's got 16 cars. It's perfect. He says, no, you cannot put one car in here. These floors will not support one car. Oh, wow. I'm like, I just bought this building. Oh, man. <laughs> Oh, no. <laughs> a friend of mine said, well, why don't you do your radio show for there? I'm not going to do my radio show for an old abandoned 30s grocery store in Columbia, Tennessee. <laughs> but what his comment did was it planted a seed. I started thinking about what is it that I most feel good about with my work on air. You know, I think that, listen, I've done my fair share of liner cards. I've done my, you know, appearances at the local Ford dealer, uh, all of those kinds of things. but if I had to be known for anything with respect to broadcast radio, I would want to be known for the interviews. 
I am a fan of the singers. I'm a fan of the uh, writers. I'm a fan of that whole process. And I'm fascinated about the human experience. I don't believe that if I'm speaking with Tim and Faith, or if I'm speaking with you, or anyone who may be watching, we all have the same shared human experiences. We know what it's like to suffer a loss. We know what it's like to have an unrequited love. We know what it's like, unfortunately, sometimes to go through a divorce. We know what it's like to have a mentor who's kind to you and helps guide your career. We know what it's like to you know, have that moment of joy when you first told your child. We know about the challenges of what, you know, at what age am I going to give my kid their own smartphone or allow them to have their own Snapchat account? Those conversations are relatable to all of us. And a person who is famous has those ex exact same things that they deal with. That's what I like to talk about. I'm, I'm less inclined. Yeah, I'll, I'll take care of the label needs. I'll talk about the single, the album, and all that kind of stuff. But really, the, the bulk of the interview for me is just a thoughtful conversation about getting to know this person, who they are, what they're about, and uh, how, how their fans best relate to them. So terrestrial radio has changed so that those kinds of interviews are, as I said, the PPM market doesn't necessarily lend itself to, to that. You're, you're right. You, you can just, unfortunately, in the terrestrial world, really just a soundbite or two, and that's about it. You can't get in-depth. That's a, a terrific point. And so I, I thought, well... If I really believe that, then <clears throat> I need to, like I told my son, we were driving down the highway one day. I said, you see 98% of all these cars around us. And of course, traffic is horrible in Nashville. I said, the majority of folks will live their lives waiting for someone to come and knock on their door saying, man, I've got a terrific opportunity I created just for you. I said, but they sit and they wait and no one ever knocks on their door. So what we're doing, Brats, we're building our own door. And that's the whole thing. If I truly believed in my ability to, to do these interviews, and if I believed that the, the, the passion was strong enough, then I have to create my own opportunity to do that. And the ability to do that in a brick and mortar venue that also now has worldwide streaming capabilities, what's not to love? It's amazing. In a lot of ways, it's a field of dreams for radio and country music together i just walked through the building with one of the founding members of the eagles no way yeah bernie loudon and you know it was so cool to see his eyes light up and first of all bob doyle who's garth's manager uh is also a big heavy investor here in columbia tennessee has been so tremendous to lean on to try and find out what it is that we can do that will be different our mission statement with the Mule House, and the reason, by the way, we call it the Mule House is because Columbia, Tennessee is long known, its nickname is Mule Town. It's the mule trading capital of the world. In fact, to this day, the mules that you'll see in the Grand Canyon originated from here in Columbia, Tennessee. No kidding. That's a great story. So that's why we call it the Mule House. It's a, it's a tip of the hat to this amazing community that, that we are in. But Bob had said, he's given so many thoughtful suggestions as to how you can, can do things differently. And all that to say, our, our mission and vision statement is to elevate what an artist and their fans can expect from a venue. So that means there's a certain joy in starting something new and never having to deal with, but that's the way we've always done it. I think you're far better off taking it 
current assessment of the environment, the landscape and saying, okay, in this landscape, how do we create uh, a viable business opportunity that can not only kind of reinvent, but also uh, forge a new pathway for a whole lot of really great hardworking people. And so that's what we've done. We've kind of gone back to the drawing board and, you know, we started off as a 500 cap theater with uh, it has a balcony that seats 150 and then we have the the main floor that'll seat 350 and then we've got a, a master plan that builds itself out where we have a full bar down below called jack and mare because uh, a mule is born of a jack and a mare a 27 room boutique hotel and then a restaurant as well j paul getty uh in his brilliance uh created this business circle he owned the oil wells, he owned the refineries, he owned the trucking system, he owned the gas stations. And one thing fed the other. And so by having a, a, an event space where we can you know, get people plenty of liquor if they want, they can get be entertained, they can have a great dinner, and then they can also stay. You in that complex have created a full service opportunity and that lends itself out as well to the artists. We wanna make certain that we have walked in their shoes. How can we make the best use of their time? So we are building in a radio studio, which will factor into other opportunities. It's great so that when an artist comes, they'll be able to knock out liners, they'll be able to do satellite interviews. We can make the most efficient use of their time with you know technology that is beyond, there is no excuse with the way this is being built. In fact, Claire Global, Radio City Music Hall, Franklin Theater, what else? They did Blake Shelton's Old Red. They are doing all the sound and lighting for the Mule House that, you know, because listen, we are investing not in something that would shine necessarily within Columbia, because I do believe that it will, but our goal is to build uh, an experience that even a person from New York, even a person from LA would come and say, I can't believe this is in this small town in Columbia. That's not the goal. We want those people to come in and say, I can't believe this place exists. And, you know, Bernie from the Eagles who just came in, he said, and, and you know, uh, Barry Coburn, Barry is one of the most highly respected uh He's been a manager. He built Alan Jackson. Uh, he has been a concert promoter. He has been uh, a, a writer's uh you know, he's been on the board of directors for ASCAP. I mean, you're talking like really high level people. I'm still stunned that I even know Barry, but he brought along Bernie. He said, is it all right if one of the founding members of the Eagles comes with me? I'm like, yeah, that'd be all right. <laughs> That's amazing. But we toured the venue and they were so generous and, and you know, listening and offering their thoughts. And, and what Barry said and what Bernie as well said, he said, this is a game changer. He said, first of all, there's nobody building a, a venue today, but what you're explaining and now having walked through the property and seeing it, I get why you're doing it. I get how you're going about it, that you are going about it the way that you are. This has never been done. And I said, well, that's, that's the goal. That's the hope. The opportunity of starting a new business, as I said, is that there's no, we've always done it this way. And so you have the ability to start with a fresh palette. Uh, you determine what your vision is. As I, I always tell our team, I said, it's, it's the GPS destination. If you know where it is that you want to go, then you just look for the most direct route and you avoid exits. So, you know, if you, if you get in your car and you start driving, you're going to get 
somewhere. But if I'm trying True. to come to California and see you, I might, might not make it. So you got to know where you're going and then you have to avoid any unnecessary off ramps. So we knew that, that we wanted to build something that defies logic in a way, but we saw the opportunity just as, you know, there were a lot of people at the outset who said an overnight show is never going to work. It will. The thing is, you and I and every single person watching right now, deep inside of you, you know what you can do. How many of us have said, man, if I just had the chance? Well, the challenge is to not wait for someone else to give you that chance, but to summon the courage to marry action to that dream and to then build it into reality. We all have that, but we have to consciously close off those voices in our head that pollute our minds saying you're not good enough. That idea will never work. Oh, this is stupid. You're letting those negative voices from other people control you and control your destiny. So you got to shut that out and you have to recall what's what you can do. The odds don't apply just as my mom would have said. So with that fresh palette, the idea of reinventing kind of what a venue can be for an artist or their fans, and then doing our due diligence and walking in the shoes of all the different people that will interface with the property. So for example, I cannot even tell you how much effort has gone into simply walking in the show, shoes of the road crews, knowing their point of load in. Is it going to be on ground level? How can we make certain that the ramps and everything are, are, are best? We have a tech sheet that not only provides the exact dimensions of the space where they may be rolling in their road gear, but if there is one wall that is canted to the left at eight degrees, you're going to know exactly about that before you even get to our property. So you know what, what gear you can and cannot bring in. I would venture to guess the way that we designed it, you should be able to bring everything. But then the same thing with the bus drivers. We wanted to make certain that they had a place where they can load up the bus with fresh water while the act is playing. We wanted to make certain that the artists, when they come to play, they have an opportunity to really exhale. A beautiful private housing, not house, but uh, like a, kind of a little apartment in that they each have their own really plush, overdone dressing rooms, a beautiful green room, which oddly enough is going to be blue, we will have done their, our research on you know, what their dietary needs are. If I'm, I'm going to know before they ever get here whether or not they're a fan of Indian food. And if so, I'm going to find the best Indian chef to make certain their dinner is beyond reproach. Same thing with the spa services. If they want a massage, got it. Want to have your car detail right here, got it. The bottom line is the experience for the artists is every bit as, much in, every bit as important as it is for the fans. And... In building those relationships uh, and also building what we hope will become uh, an iconic venue, you know, people go where they feel welcome, but they return where they feel appreciated. So if you talk to any artist out there, like, where's your favorite place to play? I would have naively thought, oh, it's Madison Square Garden, right? Not necessarily. It's about the experience. It's about the fact that when they pull up, if their crew is already there and they've already gone through load-in and it's been seamless and they're in a good mood, these are those, they're road family. If they are in a good mood, that translates to the artist. The artist arrives, they know that they are taken well, you know, well taken care of and that people have really spent some thought and effort in uh, providing them with a great experience. They're going to hit the stage in a good mood. 
they know that they are going to sound good, they know that they are going to look good, then it's a win-win. And the ability, again, to, uh, you know, make best use of their time with the ability to do radio remotes, with the ability to do their liners or whatever it is they choose, a writer's room, they got it, even a gym. I absolutely love it. Listening to you talk, it's become a culmination of all your experience throughout your career and back to this attention to details, to think about that flywheel and to make sure that all of the artist's needs are met and then some to blow away their expectations. And it's going to ultimately give the fan, the listener, probably the best musical experience that they'll ever heard, which I think is going to be a fantastic formula for success. You know, I think we have a real opportunity. Uh, there are a couple of businesses that, as I, I you know, quoted the J. Paul Getty thing, Chick-fil-A, uh, In-N-Out Burgers. If you've ever walked in, you know, uh, and every single person that walks behind the counter there, they represent that brand in such a great way. They look you in the eye, they ask how you're doing, and you really get a sense that it's not inauthentic. They put the right people at, at that position. And I've told our staff, I said, you know, that's what we aspire to do. If we're going to really elevate the experience, I would want for if one of our guests came up and said, could you show, you know, where's the restroom? I said, I want you to stop what you're doing. I want you to walk them to the restroom. But then I want you to internally ask yourself, what's the one thing that I can do? What's the cherry on top that I can do that would be unexpected? And the example that I give was when they come out of the bathroom, I'm going to have a bottle of fresh water waiting for them. And I'm going to let them know, hey, thank you so much for coming. That's so cool, man. It's the same thing with, you know, writing thank you notes. It's just goodwill. And yes, it may make for a slower build. It may be caused that we're, you know, we're spending this inordinate amount of money to build this. But again, you, you need to be a category killer. You know, it's like that first quarter of spending it, it after midnight. You got to be the firstest with the mostest. And that's what we aspire to do. We were in the throes of the interior demolition when the full depth of what COVID was going to bring to the independent venues became real. And it absolutely freaked us out. But only for two days, because that eternal optimist, I, I fully believe that when things get blown up, that means opportunity. But you have to be the person that decides, I'm going to seek it out. Certainly, give yourself some time to, to mourn whatever loss. But then, you know, are you going, if life knocks you down, are you going to allow that to define you? If you stay down, yes, it will define you. But if you get back up, no, it will not define you. Completely agreed. Actually, it'll make you stronger. And while this has been horrible and horrific, I do think that there are some silver linings. An unfortunate part is several venues, at least out here, are actually closing down, unfortunately, forever. And my heart bleeds. My heart bleeds. And, and I, I'm hopeful that, that maybe we can be, you know, I know that we've already been ex doing our level best to hire some really talented people who found themselves displaced. And uh, that's been such a blessing for us. We've, uh, um, our, the team that we have garnered together, no pun intended, uh, is <laughs> tremendous. Uh, for us in that whole disruption, we had in our business plan been talking about the ability to stream shows, uh, but it was really just kind of a lower level ancillary line of income. And, you know, we said 500 streams because we were, 
fearful that we would be the tail wagging the dog, that the market really wasn't there yet. Uh, what COVID did was it caused people, it didn't kill the desire to consume entertainment. No, what it did was it caused them to find a different way to get it because the, the desire yeah. remained. And that gave birth to the couch concert series. Uh, and so everybody knew what streaming was. And now, you know, as, as that whole idea of like, oh, we're on Facebook Live or we, we you know, here in my living room, the, the novelty of that has begun to wear itself a little bit. Uh, we made a conscious choice to pivot and to begin building the venue as a live stream venue. So it's not retrofitting. And as far as I know, we're the first to do that. Like Barry said today, he said, there's nobody building a venue now, certainly no one that's building a venue around live streaming. Sure. So we made that pivot and working with Bill Simmons, tremendously talented man at Claire, you know, he said the set is no longer just what's on stage. That entire inner uh, theater becomes the set. And then we were fortunate enough to talk to the three biggest providers for live stream events. And all three were just very excited about it. In fact, it kind of began a bidding war because they understand that what we're doing is, is markedly different from anything else. But we went with what we felt was the best match, and it's Nugs.net. They recently did uh, a Metallica show. I mean, huge, huge numbers. I know that some people look at live stream and they say, well, they haven't really found the magic in the sauce yet. Nugs has found a lot of magic, and, and we believe as well that with the marketing team, John Zarling is, you know, a 615 leverage of strategy. He and uh, Scott Borchetta, you know, doing Big Machine and then launching Taylor Swift and Thomas Red in Florida, Georgia Line. So they kind of know a thing or two. Yeah, they've done done this once or twice. Jack and Campbell, they are the best of the best, and they are our marketing team. Nugs, our live stream partners, uh, and then we have, uh, as I said, Claire Global, Dan Hines. Of all things, the guy that saved the Notre Dame show for Garth Brooks, it was John McBride from Martina's husband over at Blackbird. I called him. I said, who should I talk to about doing sound lighting? Because there's one guy, Dan Hines. So he had seen Dan working with Garth, and, of course, he worked with Martina as well. And uh, so I called Dan. Turns out he lives in Columbia, Tennessee. Oh, my gosh. He's a neighbor. What are the odds? There are so many things surrounding this. The opportunity that that, that, that we found with this building and, and tearing into it, it could not have been better built for what we are doing. I'm going to I'm going to send you uh, some images that you can fly in if you want to during this, but give you a little bit of insight as to what it looks like. Please. We're going to put a link to the Mule House in the bio. So oh, you'll Thank be able you to so grab, grab. Yeah, of course. Obviously, seen pictures of it online. When will you do the first streaming show? Probably mid-April. So really soon. That's great. We have some dates on hold that I'm not able to share publicly yet, but some impressive dates on hold. And God, I wish there was so much. I... Let's just say things look really good. Well, that is Awesome. And I would love to come out and visit. I think you're going to be set up, uh, obviously, incredibly excited about the live streaming. And I completely agree. I think that's a whole new business and experience that didn't really exist prior to COVID and is here to stay to, to some degree. I also think that live venues, live entertainment is about to have a renaissance of business. It's going to be, I think, just gauging by 
people's behavior and us already going so stir crazy, wanting to go out, putting ourselves at risk to go out of, of contracting COVID, but we'll still take those chances. Once it's become safe, I think people will, will pack, pack the halls. That's my thoughts. And I think you're right. And I'm so hopeful that these, uh, some of the venues that have had to shutter, I'm hopeful that they will come back online, um, you know, because we need it. And it's part of the tapestry of our country. And it's the, the relationships that these artists build by doing these shows. With the live stream component of this, and also understanding that, you know, as, as I was talking today with, with Bernie and Barry, the record community has changed so much. The record business has changed so much. Some of the needs that they have have not changed. Uh, if you were to tour or do a radio tour with a new artist, you know, it's number one, it's exhausting, but number two, it's incredibly expensive. And you're trying to launch a new artist in a much more fragmented society now because, you know, we're being split up with, with radio, but with Pandora, with Sirius XM. If the need to break an artist, we can actually bring them to the Mule House and we can do, if they need to do a bonus show for Miami, they can live stream it from here to Miami. They can do one the next night for Boston. They could do another one. I mean, be a residency, but we can geofence all of that through our streaming. I mean, it's amazing. You'll be able to do radio from there, podcast from there, streaming from there, video from there. I mean, it's really a multimedia production studio. We even, you know, with respect to the television crews, uh, there's a television production room. Walking in their shoes, there's a portal at the, at the side of the building where the TV trucks come and they just plug in and they have full access to the whole lighting rig, to the, uh, all the cameras, to everything. We want to make it as simple as we possibly can. And we want to have whatever it is that they may need. Everyone who comes through, I say, what's on your wish list? What do we need to do? Uh, and it's, that's factored into, I think, this collection of ideas that has grown so far past any idea that we may have had initially two years ago. We've been working on this for over two years, but the end result is going to be unique. The end result is going to be different. And, you know, I'm hopeful that we can show another approach toward uh, sustainability and viability for venues throughout the country. Um, and I'm hopeful there, there are probably a lot of other great opportunities out there, and I look forward to learning more about those. But this is the one that seems to be working for us, and it's the one that seems to be garnering a lot of attention. So we are, are fully pregnant with it. The build-out should be done early April. We're looking for our, as I said, I think our first live stream event mid to late April. And then, you know, shows will roll out more on the live stream end of it until we really get COVID under control. Uh, and then as that comfort level begins to, you know, it'll kind of dovetail. But now the live stream component will remain and, you know, we'll be able to have the audiences there as well. That's, uh, man, incredible. What a project. So exciting. I cannot wait to see it in person. Uh, the video series is fantastic. Highly recommend well, you. you check it out. Yeah. And by the way, I was watching one of the videos and you are driving a Wagoneer in a video, which that car could not be any cooler. Was it the blue one or the gray one? Oh, the gray one. We have two of those. So both of them are our final edition 1991 versions. 
and that that gray one has a beautiful burgundy interior it's kind of funny both of them the headliner started to sag down because they sit for the majority of the time so one thing i miss about living in california is the fact i could drive anything any day of the week right uh and so i only have a limited opportunity to drive some of the classics here but uh that that one came out of utah and it's only got seventy thousand original miles on it the blue one is a color called spinnaker blue and it was a special order in that final year of 1991 it's got the badge both of them had the badging on it final edition but it's one of only 27 that were built that year oh my gosh that color and funny enough that's the second spinnaker blue 91 i've had i regret selling the first one now and when i come out i obviously want to see the mule house and i cannot wait to see the car collection my last question for you is what ended up happening to the supermarket did you have to sell it or were you able to? You know what? I traded it in. You traded in the supermarket? I traded it in. The owners of the property that we now purchased or now own, uh, we did a swap. And so <laughs> the ways that we were able to, uh, to do that. But, I you know, love that. What a great story. It's so funny, Chachi. I'm, I'm telling you, this is, we, we are betting big on this. This is all resting completely on mine and Eric's shoulders. There's no other funding from anyone else any decisions that we need to make is just made you know in the kitchen and we can be true to the vision i love it man i've got so much respect for you so much respect for just the the entrepreneurial spirit the artistic spirit and just who you are as a human being i think as a request, but I think you need to put this quote up uh, somewhere in the mule house from your dad. If you're going to make a mistake, make it as big as possible. Don't be timid. That is a great you know, quote. That's a, really nice idea. Somewhere. that's a really nice idea. Man, thank you so much uh, for the time. This has been absolutely amazing. My pleasure entirely. And Chachi, I want to thank you because you serve just as I hope that we do one day uh, for others of uh, the proof that you can build something. And you know, regardless of whatever uh, professional setbacks you may have incurred or whatever messaging you may have been told about, you know, you're not good enough or, you know, that dream couldn't ever become true. Let's prove them wrong. Let's show the world what you have deep inside of you, because if you will step through that door that is waiting for you, have the courage to do it, believe in yourself and prove them wrong. I love that, man. Thank you so much, Blair.